G'day mate, Forty here. So you're looking at the special secluded area where they put smokers here at the uh, Brisbane, Brisbane Airport. They've got their own little section there off to the, the right of the screen. So looking at the Atlantic 10, that's the 10 books that, uh, that the Atlantic magazine most wants to bring to our attention for 2022. And here we go. Under the skin, guys, the, the hidden toll, right? the hidden toll of racism on African Americans and on their health of our nation. So you may not have heard about the hidden toll that racism is, is playing. So Linda Villarosa is a veteran journalist, you'll be glad to know. And she has made a forceful exposure of racism's toxic effect on the U.S. healthcare system by recounting her personal awakening. Wow, that sounds amazing. I really want to learn this. She had to learn to see health disparities in her own community as resulting from something more than poverty, right? Something more than just bad genes and bad choices. And you'd never guess what that something more is. But something more is racism. All right, guys, it's not lack of education. It's not poor diet. It's not bad individual choices. So the Atlantic and this author want to promote the idea that black people have no agency. They don't make any bad choices. They don't suffer from a lack of education. They don't suffer from poor diet. They don't suffer from you know, diabetes because they eat unhealthily, don't exercise enough. Right, it's nothing that individual black people are doing. Their health problems, all right, the result of white racism. So it's the implicit bias on the part of physicians. It's centuries of entrenched discrimination. And it's the toll of encountering and fighting daily aggression, right? That translates to high rates of kidney disease, HIV, AIDS, Right, AIDS, so you basically only get AIDS through sharing intravenous needles having unprotected anal sex. But guys, if you have unprotected anal sex, that's very likely due to centuries of entrenched discrimination. So centuries of entrenched discrimination, it uh, forces people to have unprotected anal sex so that they then become much more vulnerable to get AIDS. As well as disproportionately elevated infant and maternal mortality. Yeah, so New York City child welfare, they find that uh, black children are eight times as likely to be murdered by black parents than other kids, and far more likely, about eight times more likely to have uh, reports of child abuse, and uh, far more likely to have their children taken away. But this is nothing that individual blacks are doing, right? This is not their bad choices, all right? It is centuries of entrenched discrimination. Now, luckily, her reporting is both sensitive and straightforward science. And, best of all, she builds to a searing call for action. Right? The issue is never the fault of black patients or black people. It has nothing to do with what black people do or don't do. Right? It is the white American problem in need of a white American solution. It requires an urgent remedy powerful so 
Washington Post had an article, why doesn't Argentina have more black players in the World Cup? That was really bothering me. I was wondering how Argentina was so successful in the, in the World Cup, and yet they don't seem to have any black players. According to 2010 government release census, only 1%, less than, far less than 1% of the Argentinian population is black. Somehow, without any obviously black players, Argentina's advanced to the finals of the World Cup. So 200,000 African captives disembarked on the shores of Argentina. By the end of the 18th century, one-third of the population was black. So today, less than 4% of the genes, the 47 million people in Argentina, are of sub-Saharan ancestry. Right, so 1.7 million people, eight and a half times the number of slaves imported. By contrast, in the US, 388,000 slaves were imported. Today, 40 million identify as African Americans. The African Americans have expanded 66 times since they were imported to the US. They have a population growth rate eight times that of Argentina. So, white Americans relative to the rest of the world are really nice to African Americans as measured by the bottom line number of population expansion. Steve Saylor notes this. This would seem to explain why African Americans are by far the most famous Africans in the world. So, in this book on African American health problems, that doesn't sound like she does any cross country analysis of how Africans do in other countries. Like, where are these sterling cities on the hill that blacks just have fantastic health care and long lives, long healthy lives, right? If you compare the United States to a utopia, it does really badly. But if you compare the United States to the real world, then uh, blacks here seem to do really well. But uh, when you hold people up to some you know, uh, you know, mythical standard, then uh, right, you're never going to measure up. If you hold anyone up to some you know, mythical standard, no one's ever going to live up. But if you just compare people to what's going on in the real world, then, then you get a crash course in reality. So I'm looking at an article by Ann Applebaum here in The Atlantic. China's war against Taiwan has already started. How Beijing tries to make a democracy submit without putting up a fight. It begins with this story about something that happened in, in 2018. There was a typhoon that stranded thousands of people at an airport in Osaka, Japan. And there were some tourists on board there from Taiwan. And then you start getting these obscure websites reporting that uh, Taiwanese diplomats had failed to rescue their citizens, but China had sent buses to help their citizens escape quickly. And then this story migrated into the Taiwanese uh, mainstream media. And journalists were attacking the government. Why had China moved so quickly and effectively? Why were the Taiwanese, by contrast, why were they so incompetent? Uh, this, this became such an overwhelming story that a Taiwanese diplomat, you know, just unable to bear the deluge of commentary and shame of failure, died by suicide. Well, I suspect it was something a lot more than uh, just his shame and the deluge of social media. I mean, he probably had... You know, things going on in his life 
that uh, predisposed him to such a reckless act. So subsequent investigation turned up some strange facts. Right? The, the people who were posting most prominently about this story were not real. Turned out uh, those who were promoting the story were affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. The videos were fake. There'd been no Chinese buses. There'd been no special Taiwanese failure at all. But uh, this appearance of failure had been pounced on by Taiwanese journalists and news anchors who wanted to use it to attack the ruling Taiwanese party. And China had been pushing these narratives to argue Taiwanese democracy is weak, Chinese autocracy is strong, in an emergency the Taiwanese people will prefer China. So this is part of China's long-term campaign against Taiwan, going back to 1949. So sometimes the Chinese pressure is military, sometimes it uses other forms of pressure. They use cognitive warfare. How scary, cognitive warfare. And not just propaganda, but an attempt to create a mindset of surrender. Well, this is not going to do any good, right? Uh, you, you can't create a mindset of surrender on the heart part of your enemies. We just have no track record that this is effective. Like, the most powerful propaganda regimes, the Nazis and the communists in China and the Soviet Union, right, they weren't able to change any hearts and minds. They were only able to shore up the feelings and thinking of those who were already on their side. So, Atlantic says this combined military, economic, political and information attack should now be familiar because we've been watching it play out in Eastern Europe. Well information attack and cognitive warfare is not going to enable China to conquer Taiwan, it's not going to enable Russia to conquer Ukraine, it's not going to enable anyone to conquer anyone, right? We weren't born yesterday. We did not evolve to be gullible. Now, Taiwan is doing some good things. So overall, Taiwan seems to me to be complacent. They only spend 1% of their GDP on the military. Right, their, their, their draft, everyone gets drafted for about three months. It seems pitiful and weak. Uh, the Taiwanese have their own major political split, like between the blue and the green, right? The KMT or the DPP supporters. The Taiwanese have very angry online debates, energetic rallies. And uh, they're now on the front line of the conflict, guys, between democracy and autocracy. But even if China was a democracy, it would still be strongly incentivized to take over Taiwan. So China versus Taiwan is not primarily about an autocracy versus democracy. Right? In a time of war, democracies will turn autocratic. Look at Ukraine. Look at the United States during the Civil War or World War I. Look at uh, Great Britain. When Great Britain goes to war, you suddenly lose a whole bunch of rights. So this framing of these stories as autocracy versus democracy is just bogus. But this, this nonsense story at the beginning had unanticipated consequences. They inspired these various... Remember, South Korea was autocratic for decades, yeah. And uh, they seem to be doing okay. So anyway, this incident inspired various Taiwanese to start uh, fighting information war. And so they started up these internet sites where they would 
highlight and dissect Chinese communist propaganda. And, I mean, that seems like a good idea. That's kind of what we do here on this channel. We highlight and dissect mainstream media propaganda, propaganda from elites, propaganda from academics, you know, propaganda being pushed by the government or you know, public health authorities. So that's a good thing. Also, because it's crowdfunded, crowdsourced, it brings people together. So anything you can do to increase social cohesion in your community, in your country, among your people, is, is a good thing. So you've got all these young Taiwanese getting started in online activism. And even if China's never going to take over Taiwan by cognitive warfare, like having your young people working together in a common cause, you know, fighting for their nation, is a good thing. Even if they don't change any hearts and minds, it's good for them. It gets them more connected to their people. And you're working with other people, so you're going to get a sense of energy and human connection from that. You're going to get some increased social cohesion. And then the other thing that's uh, going on in Taiwan is that uh, they're, they're training for invasion, and you've got these various Taiwanese billionaires who are funding emergency response training. And so Taiwanese get together and learn, you know, what happens if you've got you know, a mass mass attack, mass mass bleeding, mass casualties. Like, how do you respond to that? And so, again, people from different sides of the Taiwanese spectrum are getting together, learning these skills. And in the process, they are increasing their social cohesion. They're making friends, making connections, getting energized because they've got a common cause. They're also training in emergency medicine, evacuation. And, like, some of this is just pragmatic, all right, for a typhoon, earthquake, military attack. All right, so it's got advantages, pragmatic advantages. You you'll do better in a time of emergency. So the very best thing you can do to survive an earthquake or a typhoon or a military attack is to be on good terms with your neighbors. Right? So these exercises help bond people, like they bring people together. And people then get a shared sense of strength and energy and connection and coherence from this in addition to the practical skills that they learn. Also, they're doing uh, weapons training, right? That's a good thing. So, I mean, this would apply to America or to Australia. If you've got a crime problem in your neighborhood, then you know, form a neighborhood watch, a, a citizen's you know, crime committee. Uh, you know, take uh, first aid courses. All right, so the, the point why these, these Taiwanese billionaires are funding these classes is not just to provide the skills, it's to create this intangible feeling of trust, coherence, cohesion between people. Right? It, it's tough to find activities where you feel connected to your fellow Australians, fellow Americans, fellow Taiwanese. Like, these are activities that can trust people. This is a way that society can organize itself from the ground up. And by doing practical things, it helps you overcome fear, right? And you get connected to your neighbors and to your fellow citizens. So good work there going on in Taiwan, but this can be copied anywhere. You get people on the same page, learning good, healthy, practical skills together, 
and then whenever you do something together, you inevitably start to build bonds, and then whenever you start to build connections with other people, you inevitably start to form a, an ethic, a, a morality that comes from connection. Even if you just play basketball with someone on a regular basis, if you go bowling on a regular basis, you'll form connections that then lead to a moral bond, and that will inform how you view the world.